This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. Welcome to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Hi, I'm Jamie Busson. I'm a former commercial litigator who used to weigh 242 pounds. When I was 38 years old, I lost over 50 pounds through a regimen of exercise and better nutrition. It took me a year to reach my goal, but I thought if a type A personality like me could do it, really anybody can. I'm still asking questions and learning about what it means to live a healthy lifestyle. Please join me on this continuing journey. Today, we'll discuss the overprescription crisis with geriatric pharmacist Andy Donald. We'll discover what it takes to be a big brother or big sister with big sibling extraordinaire David Owasoga. We'll find out how to make dining in easy with culinary expert Carolyn Cohen. And lastly, we'll learn all about the knowledge book with expert Robin Preboy. But before we get to that, here's your tonic quick shot of healthy headlines. Did your mother ever tell you that fish was brain food? New evidence indicates that eating cold water fish and other sources of omega-3 fatty acids may preserve brain health and enhance cognition in middle age. Having at least some omega-3s in red blood cells was associated with better brain structure and cognitive function among healthy study volunteers in their 40s and 50s, according to research published on October 5th online in Neurology. It may come as no surprise to you, But researchers at Brigham and Women's Hospital provided experimental evidence that late eating causes decreased energy expenditure, increased hunger, and changes in fat tissue that combined may increase obesity risk. It seems that eating later has profound effects on hunger and appetite-regulating hormones leptin and ghrelin, which influence our drive to eat. When participants in the study ate later, they also burned calories at a slower rate and exhibited adipose tissue gene expression towards increased adipogenesis and decreased lipolysis, both of which promote fat growth. Do you think that your dog knows when you're stressed? A new study published in PLOS Journal supports this theory. The psychological processes associated with an acute psychological stress response produce changes in human breath and sweat, the dogs can detect with an accuracy of 93.75%. That was your tonic quick shot. I'll be joined by Andy Donald in a moment, but first, a little bit of business. Tired of lineups at your pharmacist? Why not try PharmaZ at the Zoomer store? Powered by the Health Depot, an Ontario-accredited pharmacy, PharmaZ offers a concierge approach to filling, refilling, and managing your prescriptions with free delivery anywhere in Ontario. To get started, visit zoomerstore.com and click on PharmaZ. And then click on the Circle of Care Pharmacy program for your free initial consultation with a clinical pharmacist. Don't wait. Go today. Andy Donald is a certified geriatric pharmacist and president of the Health Depot Pharmacy. His passion to help patients and deliver personalized services led him to launch the Health Depot, one of Ontario's only clinical pharmacies. Andy is active in his profession, serving on several committees, including with the Ontario Pharmacists Association and Prescribe It. He holds a BSc PHM and an RPH BPHED, a PSCH in Life Science, 
and an MSc Cellular Biology and Anatomy. That's a lot of letters, Andy. How are you doing? <laughs> uh, nice to meet you. Good to talk to you, Jamie. Yeah, a lot of degrees. <laughs> a lot of degrees. So we have high expectations for you today, Andy. <laughs> Sounds good. We're going to talk about a, a subject that we really haven't discussed much on the show, and that is overprescribing, which I know is important to you. So why don't we get right into it? My understanding is that medications are a bit of a problem in Canada. Many of us are not taking them as we're supposed to, and a lot of us are taking too many. Can you explain medication overdose in simple language and, and how much of a problem it actually is? Yeah, medication overuse. Yeah, a lot of this stems because of less than 50% of Canadians actually take their med as prescribed. Yes, sometimes we forget, but often the reason why we're not taking medications is because they don't make us feel good. And the reason why is because we're often taking medications that are doses that are often too high or we're on too many medications. And the extent of this problem is that adults in Canada over the age of 65, about two-thirds of us are taking five or more prescription meds, a quarter are taking 10 or more, and one in 12 adults over the age of 65 are taking 15 or more medications. At this point, it's like a whole mitful wow. of medications. It's almost like a whole other meal of medications, just too many meds. Okay. So why do you think medication overuse is so common, and, and how do we get to that point? Well, the reason why it happens is that as our bodies age, unfortunately it changes and our organs tend to slow down a bit. Our ability to chop up medications often happens in our liver, right? That's mm -hmm. what we use to process medications and break them down and that slows every year of our lives. And our ability to get rid of them is often done by our kidneys and that also continually declines. This means that the same medication, the same dose that you're taking sticks around a lot longer. So every year as we age, our medications stick around a little bit more and more that can lead to more side effects, drug interactions, and eventually toxicity. So then what happens is often the side effect, unfortunately, why we get on so many meds is that the side effect of one drug can go unnoticed and is treated with another drug. And that's how it eventually leads us to taking a whole metful. So what should be happening is that ideally, as our bodies change, our medication, their doses also are continually changing too. So if they're slowing down, then our med doses go down over time, and eventually we have to even switch off one med to another med to make it more safe for us. So meds really need to be personalized to each individual. But aren't doctors already doing that? I mean, you would assume that a family physician would know you're X years old or, you know, you're having these issues. So isn't that already being done? Like, why is it falling to the pharmacist to notice this? It's often being missed a lot in the community because a lot of people are not aware that doctors can't do everything. Right? right, of course, yeah. Pharmacists and doctors go to school for the same four years. Doctors spend 95%, 90 to 95% of their education on diagnosing. You know, the most important part of healthcare is making sure we know what's wrong with you, right? Of course, yeah. 10,000 yeah. conditions out there, you know, and I grew up in a very big healthcare family, a lot of doctors in my family. My dad is 73 years old and full-time doctor practicing still. Mm -hmm. And they know how to diagnose, but they learn very little, less than like about 5% of their ed educations on medications, whereas for pharmacists, it's the opposite. So doctors, unfortunately, have been left. It's not their fault why this medication overuse is such a, a big issue in Canada. It's because they've been forced to, since the pen and paper era, like writing down prescriptions and healthcare siloing, to both diagnose you, but then choose what medication to put you on and monitor the safety of the medications that they never really learned about in school in the first place. 
All right, let's spend a moment on unsafe medications. So are there unsafe medications for older adults specifically? Is that a problem? Yes, it's a big problem. In fact, in Canada, a third of all senior hospital visits are directly due to them taking what we refer to as a potentially inappropriate medication, which is a medication that's unfit for someone over the age of 65 to be taking. But what's really shocking is just under a third of older adults in Canada over the age of 65 are currently taking one of these medications every single day. The point is that it doesn't necessarily mean that you shouldn't be on a given medication, but there's a much safer alternative to be used to treat the same condition. Okay, so are there lists of these inappropriate medications? Yes, there are. And like one of the, the main lists is something called the beers list. And beers, spelt like what you think it is, but not that kind of beers list. It's uh, just named after the gentleman who made it. It's a 21-page document of inappropriate meds that should not be taken by older adults. And they span all the health conditions out there. If you're diabetic, heart disease, sleeping, pain, mood medications, like there's meds in those classes these shouldn't be taken as we get older because they stick around longer and they cause more problems. Even like medication that cause you to get dizzy, get into the brain a lot easier as we get older, right? Your blood brain barrier like slowly becomes more porous so things can get in there more over as time goes on. The point is that, you know, we simply, is that we need to change medications away from some of those nasty medications to much safer medications. And that would reduce a third of all hospital visits, reducing billions in, in healthcare expenses, but more importantly, reducing a lot of pain and suffering out there. I want to talk about the pain and suffering in a second, but I have a, a sort of a collateral question, and it's my ignorance. Maybe everybody knows this, but I don't. Do pharmacists have the latitude to sort of make those changes to the medications? Like if you saw somebody coming in who was on an inappropriate medication, or do you have to report it back to the doctor to fix that? Well, it's changing over time, so I guess it depends what province you're in. Certain provinces, pharmacists have almost full prescribing rights, like out in uh, Alberta. But, you know, in Ontario, for instance... At the moment, we do need to work together with the doctor on those changes. So you still need to get the doctor's approval for the change. Okay, so circling back to pain and suffering, what sort of things have you seen personally? Well, there's a lot of pain and suffering I've seen in the the community over the years, but one in particular uh, example that really stuck out with me, right? Mm -hmm. One of my marketers that first helped us out to launch the Health Depot in the first place. This was his story, right? And this kind of exemplifies a lot what's happening in our healthcare system. So he was the primary caregiver of his mom, who was 90 years old, 89, turning 90. And she was on 17 medications. Yeah. I've heard of patients on over 31. I've met one over on 31. And a gerontologist in London here recently told me they have a patient right now who's taken 47 different types of medications. Oh, my God. It's shocking. Just, like, way too many. So 17 is still a lot, and he referred to his mom as a walking zombie for years. So he would constantly help take her and say, what's wrong with my mom? She's always dizzy and falling over. He would take her to, she was seeing five or six different doctors, and he'd take her to one doctor or another, and the doctors would just, he said, you know, fix my mom, there's something wrong with her. And the doctor would tweak a dose here, add another medication there. Oh, you're, you're vertigo? Here's a medication for vertigo, or one for dizziness, right? Yeah. But nothing ever changing. Well, eventually his mom fell and broke her hip. And I obviously, right away, anyone over the age of 90, about 27.5% of seniors don't make it the next year, unfortunately. It's a, it's a really traumatic injury. So yes. I was like, oh, my God, how is she doing? And he responded to me, oh, she's fine. And I was like, well, how long has it been? He said, oh, it's been over two years. And this is what really surprised me. He said, and in fact, it was the best thing that ever happened to her. 
I was like, what do you mean? That just bored me. Yeah. I was like, what do you mean your mom falling and breaking her hip was the best thing that ever happened to her? And he explained to me, right? He said, well, because my mom had to go to the hospital and she was there for two, two and a half months. And in the hospital, the doctors worked together with pharmacists who looked into blood work and got daily feedbacks from the nurse and they personalized her on the meds she actually needed. And then he smiled to me and he said, she went in with 17 medications. How many meds do you think she left on? What do you think, Jamie? I don't know. I'm, I'm guessing it's a single digit. I'm hopeful that's the case. <laughs> yeah. What do you think? Like, throw out a number. Five. Five? Yeah. So I didn't do as well. You know, it's kind of a loaded question. Right? Yeah, yeah, I know. <laughs> but, but I mean, I said nine. I would be impressed if half the meds were taken off. Right. And he, re- he smiled and replied, five. You're right. Five Whoa. Meds. 12 medications deprescribed in two months, 12 unnecessary medications that had accumulated over the years, the side effect of one drug treated with another drug that led her to this sensation and feeling. This is an example of healthcare at its finest, you know, that doctors working together with pharmacists, with feedback from the nurse in the hospital as it should be, right, to help get her on the meds she needs. That eventually, when she, you know, left the hospital, she was feeling much better. And that's why he said to me it was the best thing that ever happened to my mom, because he got his mom back. That is bananas and sounds so unnecessary. Like, it's crazy that she had to go to the hospital to have that epiphany. How does this happen, though? Let's dissect it. Let's do a little forensics here. How does something like this happen? And do you think there's any blame? Well, as I mentioned to you, a lot of it has to do with education and and background, right? Because... Mm -hmm. Lack of healthcare siloing in the community is the problem. Doctors are not to blame for this. People are quick to point a finger at doctor, but as I mentioned already, their schooling was all about diagnosing for the most part, right? Mm -hmm. Very little about medications. Pharmacists are complementary in our knowledge, but when we get out into the community, doctors are left to do everything. They, doctors are responsible for diagnosing you, which, you know, the most important part we talked about. But then they select what medication to give you and monitor the side effects of the medications they learn very little about in school in the first place, right? Mm. It's not doctor's fault. It's our healthcare system siloing being the problem in the past that hasn't allowed information exchange because uh, healthcare information is very tightly regulated. Right. But now that's the past. There's so much more we can do now to improve things and to help contribute. All right. So if the issue is siloing, and we've addressed siloing in different contexts and healthcare on the show numerous times, how do we bridge this gap? Is it just that the data is more free-flowing now? How do we unsilo the siloable information? Well, it's amazing. Now with healthcare information exchange, the whole game can change in the community, right? Mm-hmm. That healthcare collaboration you see in the hospitals because doctors and in hospitals all over Canada have health records for all Ontarians right now. So if you go from Toronto to Ottawa and you end up in the hospital, they can see doctor's reports, special supports, drug filling history, blood work in the community in the hospital for you to make sure they can give you good quality care. That's available all over Ontario for hospitals. Now you can apply for that e-health network in the community as well. And that's what we have as a clinical pharmacy for any of our patients in Ontario. If we can provide care where we refer to ourselves as a clinical pharmacy right. and that we can help make sure it's the right medication, the right dose for you, personalizing meds, we have access to that same health information system as the hospitals. And that's the future is that now pharmacists with access to that information, we can help to doctors to help personalize meds as our bodies change over time, making sure it's the right dose for you. 
so what would that look like, Andy? So let's say I came to you and, and I had been taking drugs since my 50s. Now I'm in my 60s and you sort of red flag a drug that isn't appropriate anymore. What do you do next? Do you call the doctor or do you suggest to the client that they reach out to their doctor to get a different prescription? How does it work? Yeah, so we work together. We're trying to create those same healthcare teams you see in the hospital, into the community, right? Mm-hmm. You shouldn't have to fall, break your hip, or have a stroke to get that good collaborative care. I would hope not, that, yeah. Yeah, that hospital-level collaboration care we need to do in the community. So we engage your family doctor. We engage your cardiologist, your neurologist, right? Mm-hmm. So cardiologists, yes, they know heart medications really, really well. Just like neurologists know neurology medications really well. They have to pass exams to know those medications in order to become a specialist. But they don't know each other's medications well, right? The pharmacist needs to be that central linchpin. It's not doctor's fault why this medication overuse and this big problem exists. It's the healthcare system's fault. But now that we have the technology, it's on pharmacy to rise up and use it. We need to plug in that hole in the healthcare system. We need to be that support and that resource for doctors to work together to that collaborative, that story I told you about the hospital. Pharmacists, then we engage your doctors to make suggestions. And we can do it based on, for instance, I can reach out to the doctor and say, hey, Dr. John Doe, we need to lower his medication from 50 milligrams to 25 milligrams because their kidney function is this. And we provide him a number. And we say, and this is becoming high and toxic and causing side effects. You know, and the doctor's like, oh my God, thank you. Please do that. That's what we need to do going forward. We work together with both you and your doctor on making those adjustments. It's a healthcare team we need to create, a circle of care, at the center of the circle of care is obviously you, right. the patient, yeah. but then it's anyone else in your care. It's like, so the pharmacy, we're the drug experts. Doctors are your diagnosis experts. We work together and we need to have these team meetings and open communication between us. And we have the sharing of health information obviously now, which is amazing, but to give you the best quality care. It needs to be personalized. What works for you doesn't necessarily work for me, doesn't work for my dad, doesn't work, we're all different. We have all different food insensitivities, if you think of it this way. Food's naturally something that we all eat. Some people can't have dairy, spices, gluten, you know, shellfish, peanut butter, everything. Like, you know, people have different sensitivities to food, which is naturally going in you. Well, there's over 10,000 different drugs, and they're not natural in our body, so they need to be individualized too, right? And, you know, you can't, there's not a cookie cutter one size fits all for all diabetic patients, all heart disease patients, all, you know, any of the spectrum and conditions, you know, that's how we improve. In school, we were focusing on making sure people take their medications, right? Yep. Less than half the Canadians take their meds. So they said, you need to, like, finger-wagging us, you need to tell people to take their medications. And I'm like, I can't shove it down their throats, right? Right. You know, a lot of times they choose not to take their meds. It's because it doesn't agree with them. We need to make sure it's the right combinations that it does agree with them. That's the future of pharmacy, and it's exciting. We now have the technology to finally do something about this. This is a worldwide problem. It's just in Canada with our e-health and our technology now, we're one of the first countries that can do something about it. It's pretty exciting. It is. Will you come back again and tell us more about it? Absolutely. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Thank you. Thanks so much, Jamie. Appreciate it. That was Andy Donald. For great health and wellness articles and interviews, visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we come back, we'll discuss what it takes to be a big sibling on The Tonic. Your family's health and wellness needs should come first. 
These days, taking care of a loved one should be as easy as ordering goods and groceries to your door on your smartphone. You need MedWorks, an at-home service that pulls it all together. We make healthcare and wellness services easy to navigate. MedWorks, at home your way every day. Download the app today. MedWorks. Hi, I'm Jamie Buston. If you're like me, you love delicious and nutritious foods. You need to know what's new in health and wellness, and you're looking for something fun to do. Why not visit the Tonic Marketplace at the Zoomer Show on October 29th and 30th? It's a specially curated area that has all your favorite health and wellness brands like Kalaya and Yosos. Free samples, tons of giveaways, lots of fun. See you at the Tonic Marketplace. For more information, visit zoomershow.com. Welcome back to the Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. David Oshaga was born in Lagos, Nigeria, and moved to Canada when he was nine years old. He graduated from the University of Lethbridge with a BSc in Applied Statistics and is currently pursuing a Master of Mathematics in Data Science at the University of Waterloo. David's volunteered as a teen and in-school mentor since 2015 and remains very active in his community, coaching for track and field and volunteering at various church youth programs. A former varsity track and field athlete, His love of sports has given him a tenacious work ethic and encouraging personality to be a light and change to those lives around him. Today, David continues to be a champion for Big Brothers Big Sisters and the little mentees that they serve. He joined their National Youth Mentoring Advisory Council in 2019 and was named co-chair in 2020, a role that he currently holds. Welcome to the show, David. How are you? Thank you so much. I'm doing well. Thank you. So when did you decide that volunteering to be a big brother is something that you could do? Yeah. So when I was in my sophomore year of high school, there was a caseworker from my local agency and she came to my school and set up a booth during lunch hour and myself and my buddies wandered over to her table, wanted to know more about it. And after she told us about the program and the youth that we could impact, we decided that this is something we wanted to pursue. So we went through some training and then we were assigned some littles at a local elementary school. And by the time we were in senior, it exploded. And there were eight of us guys who were coming every week and just hanging out with the kids. And what motivated you to be a big brother? Like, why did you want to do it? When I was younger, as I emigrated from Nigeria and my father was away at school pursuing his education. So during my formative years, there were other men who stepped into my life from my church community. And they taught me values that I still hold to this day. And they were there for me when my father wasn't physically present. So looking back on that, I've decided that it's something that is very important and something that I want other youth to have the opportunity to have. Fantastic. So looking back at your childhood, would you have appreciated someone like you, like a big brother to talk to? Absolutely. I'm an oldest child, actually. And so I've been tasked with figuring things out on my own and my younger siblings look up to me. So then as an oldest child, having someone who I could talk to, someone who I can converse with, someone who has a shared experience with me of being an immigrant or being someone who has been the head of their family has been something that I would have liked as a child and something I'm grateful to have. Yeah. So, you know, when, when people throw around the term mentor, like in my mind, I think, oh, you know, somebody who's like uh, taking me under their wing professionally and sort of brought Mm -hmm. me up in a business context, but you're mentoring kids who could be as young as seven years old. So what do you think is a key skill that a big brother or big sister should have if they want to mentor a child who, who might be that young. Absolutely. It all starts for me with being present. 
you may not have an initial understanding of your little and how they operate, but taking the time to intentionally interact with them, to build a relationship with them is a great first start. And that doesn't have to be huge. That doesn't have to be something that is impactful right away, but it all starts with taking the time out of your day and saying, hey, I want to invest my time into you to make sure that you can grow and achieve your full potential. And it all starts with meaningful conversations. Kids are a lot more articulate than we think and making sure that they feel heard, they know that they're valued and they're understood is a way that we can encourage them to overcome adversity and yeah, become bigger. You know, I'm sure there's a lot of people listening out there who, you know, want to participate and think there's value in helping, as you say, a little, but they may not think that they have the right skill set or that they're really able to do it. What would you say to them? Feeling inadequate in terms of the skills, that's totally understandable. That's something that I personally struggled with when I first became a mentor because I'm a dude, I'm not very creative. And with activities, with crafts, I'm not super good at that, but the caseworkers were awesome. They helped plan our activities. They trained us in how to uh, deal with conflict resolution, how to engage in conversation with someone younger than you. And they even provided me with like an actual physical box of just activities and games that I could play with them when I ran out of ideas. And then once I got more comfortable in the relationship, it gets easier. And then you learn more about your little, what their strengths are, what their interests are. And then you can spend an entire session playing catch or throwing out a front of football. I once spent an entire month teaching my little how to solve a Rubik's Cube. Uh, I went back every week and we learned a different layer of the cube. And by the end of the month, he was solving it. And that was a labor of love. I'm sure. <laughs> but it was a lot of fun. It sounds like a process, right? Like it's not an end goal, right? Like there's no end goal. You're there for them. So both of you are growing together, right? Absolutely. Absolutely. The one thing that I've learned as a mentor is that I gain as much, if not more, from the relationship than they do. And I'm learning about what it is to be a good leader, what it is to be a good role model, because I can't be a good mentor for the hours a week that I spend with the kid and then be a buffoon outside, right? I got to be consistent and because that's the kind of person I want my mentee to be. See, so. I want to be like you. I'm a, <laughs> when I get out of the studio, I'm a complete buffoon, right? So I could learn from you. I mean, I'm much older than you, but you could be my big brother and teach me how to conduct myself out of here. Can we do that? I'm just, that trying, to, I'm just trying to do better. And as long as everyone's trying to do better, I think we're going to do all right. I think that's right. What are some of the different ways that young mentors help kids today? What are some of the things that, that you do? So one thing that we have to understand is that we aren't their parents and parents often enroll their kids in Big Brothers, Big Sisters programming. We're there to provide an outlet for them. We're there to listen to them, to make sure that they don't fall through the cracks. And it doesn't have to be, again, elaborate. It can be as simple as playing a board game, talking about the latest Disney Plus TV show. It can be as easy as playing catch with them. But it's all about making sure that you're taking time out of your day to be present in the life of someone younger than you who might need someone to talk to. I would imagine that some of the littles that you're dealing with may have to varying degrees issues that they're dealing with or struggles that they're dealing with. How are you equipped as a volunteer to deal with those? Like, like were you trained? Absolutely. So before we begin a match, the caseworkers take all volunteers in. We're first screened and then we are assigned a little bait. We do like an aptitude type test or that we fill out what our interests is, what our backgrounds are, and then we're matched with a little that most closely fits that. And after we've done that, we go through training sessions on, again, conflict resolution, how to engage in conversations, signs to look out for if they're displaying potential domestic violence or potential uh, mental health issues and how do we address those things. So we're trained by those before we even begin our match. And then during our match, our caseworkers check in with us monthly 
and make sure saying, hey, how are things going? Is there any ways that I can help? What are you noticing? Are there any patterns and trends? So there's definitely training that's provided into it that makes sure that we can best be there for our mentee. Right. And I would imagine that there's a lot of learning on the fly, right? I, I would imagine that there are challenges that you've experienced that have come up in the moment. So what's that like? How do you cope with that when, when like a real issue arises? Oh, yeah. It's big at the beginning of the relationships to set proper boundaries because as a kid, we were all kids. We like to test. We like to test boundaries, see what we can get away with. Yeah, for sure. And so just making sure that you are kind but firm and letting them know that you're there for them, but you aren't there to reign your authority all over them. You're there to walk with them and yeah, just be there for them. So in my life or in my relationship that I had with my mentee, he was big into video games and shocker he was and he said well he just wanted to have our sessions be let's just play video games and i said well that is something we could do but that isn't something that's going to grow right. you or me and so we kind of butted heads about that at the beginning and then we just found middle ground where i'd say okay for in a one-hour session for example we'll spend 30 minutes going outside we'll play catch we'll go for a walk and then we'll go back inside and then we'll play a game and then i would always screen the games first and be like okay because there's some really good content out there Especially there's a Google called Interland that is a phenomenal web safety video game that kids can play. And we went through, beat all the levels on that. And that was something that's both productive and fun and kind of fit in both of our interests. So just finding ways that your mentee still feels heard because the last thing you want is for them to feel like, oh, this, my mentor is bossing me around, yada, yada, yada. So it's really important that they feel heard, but also you're firm with the boundaries that you're setting with them. So you mentioned like an hour session and I'm curious and I, and I don't know the answer to this. Like what's the time commitment with you and your, and your little, like on a weekly basis? So it depends on the programming that you're in. Uh, Big Brothers Big Sisters offers a phenomenal range of programming depending on your capacity to serve and also the kind of relationship that you're wanting to engage in. So for myself personally, I was a teen mentor and an in-school mentor first, which was an hour a week, which is one less TV show episode. Right. That's it. With commercials, and, yeah. Yeah, and then if you want to become a more traditional match, then it's two to three hours a week. That's one setting. You can go bowling. You can watch a baseball game, bada-boom, bada-bing. And the time, once you realize or take into account that the time that you're not investing into yourself, you're investing into someone else that is also going to reciprocate into yourself, it makes the time commitment feel less and less burdensome and more and more fulfilling. Fantastic. We have time for one last question, and that is how does a local Big Brothers Big Sisters agency help you to be an effective big sibling? So as I mentioned before, we had lots of training in various areas and I get check-in requirements from my caseworker asking how things are. Are there any signs that I should be looking out for? How can I feel better supported? And I can go back to them. And I did originally at the start with, okay, I need craft ideas. Oh, my little is big into art. I can't draw. How can I, what can I do? And they were super, super obliging and willing to give us ideas, supplies and supplies with everything that we needed. I was super supported by my agencies, the caseworkers. They do a phenomenal job because they, they know every match mentee mentor by name and they take time to make sure that you are feeling as supported as you can. So the programming and delivery, even though now it's both in person and virtual, there's been a pivot in the implementation of how these programs are delivered. And Big Brothers Big Sisters has invested lots of tools into, okay, how can we make sure matches still function remotely? How can we make for sure matches still function online? And the caseworkers and agencies have done a great job with that. Fantastic. If somebody were inspired to be a big sibling, where should they go for more information? 
So if you're looking for more information or want to help out at your local agency, you can go online to bigbrothersbigsisters.ca and find an agency near you. Fantastic. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. Yeah, thank you for having me. For more information about David's work, visit bigbrothersbigsisters.ca. For more great health and wellness interviews and articles, visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but we'll be right back on The Tonic. When I grow up, I want to be a leader, not a follower. I want to feel loved, not lost. I want to live a life that's full of promise, not dread. The trauma from adverse childhood experiences can last a lifetime. But with your help, we can make sure it never defines it. Connect now at bigbrothersbigsisters.ca. Lack of magnesium can lead to serious health issues. Sadly, one in three Canadians aren't getting enough. Common signs include trouble sleeping, low concentration, irritability, headaches, muscle cramps, or spasms. Could you be lacking? Choose from New Roots Herbal's ultra-gentle magnesium bisglycinate, heart mag for added cardiac support, or clarity mag. A no-brainer for anyone over 50. Exclusively at health food stores. To find a store near you, visit newrootsherbal.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Carolyn Cohen has owned and operated a highly successful boutique cooking school in Toronto called Delicious Dish, which specialized in whole food home cooking for the past 20 years. Her informative and casual teaching style has inspired many people to become great cooks. In her new role at Cookin', she's helping to recruit and onboard home cooks. Carolyn loves seeing the creative energy and integrity the cooks have for their own brand as they prepare to share it with the city for the first time. After hearing from many cooks who've been struggling to find balance and autonomy in the food industry, she looks forward to working with them to nourish more people by making home-cooked meals more accessible. Welcome back to the show, Carolyn. How are you? Thank you. Great, Jamie. Nice to be here. So you and I have noticed that I think a lot of people are cooking and hosting people over as opposed to going out. Would you agree? Totally. I think that, you know, especially after the pandemic, people are realizing that they could still be at home enjoy people at home, cook at home, and order food into their home and still have a great night. Why do you think that dining in is such a hot trend? Is it out of necessity or is there something more going on? I think that the pandemic birthed a new concept of Saturday night out, (laughs) or will you call it Saturday night in? So I think people are realizing that they could have a very nice evening staying at home and inviting people into their home. It used to be a very daunting task, and I think COVID forced people to look at staying in in a very different light. And I think that's why the trend has changed. I think there's also some external factors that are impacting people's decision. I can tell you that I am enjoying the dining out experience much less because it's become a lot more expensive yep. and restaurants are really struggling with fewer staff and less professional staff to get meals out. So I personally resent when I go to a restaurant, if I'm paying a lot of money, which I'm happy to do if the food is good, but the service isn't there, or it just feels like there's something missing, like the portions are getting smaller in order to even keep the food pricing in line with what people's expectations yeah, are. Yeah, I totally agree, Jamie. When I go to a restaurant, it's not only about the menu. It's about the vibe. It's about the buzz. 
it's about the service for sure, because if I'm not going to be cooking, then I sure want good service when I'm out at a restaurant. I'm finding that going to a restaurant is getting more challenging and more challenging. Yeah, and to allude to what you were just saying about staffing shortages and, you know, even in a restaurant, I'm finding that, you know, I walk into one of my old favorites and half the restaurant is empty because they're not allowing people to sit in it because they need the space to be doing takeout. The delivery drivers are coming in and out of the restaurant for a lot of the restaurants. And people are lining up to pick up their food, which definitely changes the vibe of going out for dinner. Okay. Never mind the parking in our crazy city. Yeah, no, let's not go there. You know what bothers me so much is that when I finally do go out for dinner and I make a reservation and I plan a night out, and a lot of people are, you know, planning a night out. It might be their only night out that week. Maybe they've gotten a babysitter. Maybe it's, you know, a big event for them. The restaurants are giving you an hour and a half. Right. And that doesn't allow for a lot of, you know, downtime, relaxed time, get to know your friends again time. So I find that it's a lot nicer to stay at home, whether you're cooking at home or you're ordering in from a really, really nice restaurant or you're ordering in from a home cook chef, that to stay home and enjoy your friends at your leisure, have the time you want to have, open a bottle of wine that you're not paying triple E price for and just enjoy the night play your own music. Okay. I agree with you to a large extent, but there are some challenges in hosting a dinner. Not all hosts are created equal. Not all hosts are created equal, for sure, and most people find it extremely stressful. So I have a few tips for you. Mm -hmm. So I had a party the other day, okay, Mm -hmm. for my birthday, actually. Happy birthday. Thank you. And I didn't want to go out for dinner. We were a big crew. We were like 15 people, and nobody wanted to cook, and nobody even wanted to do a potluck, and nobody really wanted to order a takeout meal either. So we made it really fun and simple. We ordered really good pizzas. Somebody made a salad and somebody made dessert. We had a few appetizers that we also purchased from a grocery store and we put it on the table and it wasn't only about the food. It was, it became more about the social event. Okay. But what's your tip there? My tip is it doesn't have to be fancy and it doesn't have to be stressful. Having said that, Some people don't want to do that, and some people do want to cook at home, and some people want to do all the cooking or part of the cooking. So my tips are this. There's plenty of places where you go and get appetizers and partially ready-made food in a grocery store that's very, very high quality, and then you can make one or two things or each friend bring one thing, the old-style potluck dinner, Mm -hmm. but not even really that. Another option is to order from a restaurant and plate the food at home, on your plates, in your oven, on your dishes. That's another way of doing things. And of course, you could order from cooking and you know get it from a home cook chef as well. So these are little tips that it's not black and white. You don't have to be making the whole meal. Okay. And where do we go from there? What else do you recommend? Where do we go from there? Well, we go from there is that, you know, your friends come over, you let them know that this is the kind of event you're going to have. And it's much more about, you know, including your friends in the prep and including them in the prep so that they feel that they're part of the party. They feel that they've contributed and it's not so formal and fussy. Gone are the days where people are invited to a dinner party and they're walking in empty handed. People want to be part of the event. So are you talking about actually sort of doing, as we discussed last time you were on the show, mise en place or sort of congregating in the kitchen? Yeah. I have another great tip, though. Yeah. So I went to a party the other night. It was called a letter P party. Okay? okay. It was very fun. Everybody had to bring something relating to the letter P. So somebody brought pies. Somebody brought pasta. 
and then somebody built a you know a menu around the letter P. The organizer built a menu, and everybody had to fill it in on a shared Google Doc, which was very cool. And it became a fun event with a theme. So this particular person has an event like this every month, and it's a different theme every month. So it's the same group of people. And every month we have a different theme, whether it's a letter or whether it's a food group or a uh, style of cooking, but everybody's involved so they feel like they're part of the party and it becomes a cohesive group also. So the idea is that, you know, you feel like you're part of something that's a little bit bigger than just yourself. Yeah, we had a supper club when we were much younger and our kids were younger because it was just easier to do that than go out. And there were sort of four couples and it worked until it didn't. And the reason that it breaks down is there's always different levels of commitment and different levels of cooking skills. So like, it's okay if somebody isn't great and you give them something easier to do, like, I don't know, like a soup or a salad, but if they're the ones hosting and they're putting together the meal, like if you have higher expectations for the food, I guess I would say it can't just be about the food. If you're doing something like that, it has to be more about the people. I no, would say. it's exactly about the people, but that's really what it should become about. And then the party becomes about the people and about the fun as opposed to just about the food. It should not be only about the food. No, I agree with that, but, okay. but a little bit of it should be about no, the food, was... right? Like, I like my food. You know that. Jamie, of course, you're having a dinner party. It's right. not just going to become about the people. Right. But, so you have a handful of people at the dinner party who like to cook, who like yeah. to, you know, make this a little bit extra special. And right. the rest of the people, and everyone knows who they are, could bring the pie for the pea party, could bring the, sure. you know, Prosecco if they're having a pea party. There's always ways around not cooking. Yeah. I went to another party a little while ago. You go to a lot of parties. I know I go to a lot of parties. Well, you know, you're very popular. (laughs) I don't think it's a matter of being popular. I think people know that I cook. So they invite me over because I cook. Ah, okay. There we go. (laughs) So Jamie, you need to invite me over to one of your parties and I'll cook for you. Okay. Um, Fair enough. This was a takeout party. So everybody had to bring takeout from a cool place. Okay. Yep. Okay. So that was really fun too. I went to an event a number of years ago where, you know, it was a order in dinner party and something came every hour to the door. So that was really fun too. And it was a big surprise. And sometimes it was like, you know, high end takeout. And sometimes it was, you know, fries from McDonald's. And that was fun just because, you know, the delivery drivers came in and then, oh, what's happening now? So it's all about the theme, Jamie, and not necessarily the actual food that you're putting in your mouth. Okay. So we have time for one last tip. Where do you want to go? When people walk into the house, and we talked about this last time, have food sitting on the kitchen counter and have a great playlist. Okay. So do you play DJ? Is that your thing? I personally don't play DJ. My partner does because he's awesome at that, but I want nothing to do with that. I'd rather handle the food in the bar. But get to know your crowd, get to know their music, and maybe even have that on your shared Google Doc. Your top 10 favorite songs are, put it on a playlist and make sure that's playing and a little bit louder than you think. Okay. Is that where you pull out the boards that we talked about from time to time? That's where I pull out the boards, make them creative. I have an extra last tip. Okay, go on. Note the trend butterboard. Yeah. Okay, where you're putting butter and then you're putting some stuff around it to dip the butter in. I hate that. I think making a hummus board or a dips board is way better. And you make circles of different dips, put veggies around it, and some different types of breads, crackers, and pita maybe. And everybody dips. It's a conversation starter. And again, all about the people, all about the conversation, not so much about the food. Okay, so I'm with you. And I think like a cheese platter could go a long way or, I don't know, vegetables, marinated vegetables. But I would say 
The adjunct to that tip is don't go overboard with your boards because then nobody will have room for the rest of your dinner. Fair? Very true. Excellent. Very true. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. You're welcome. It's great to be here, Jamie. For more health and wellness interviews and articles, visit thetonic.ca. We have to take a short break, but when we return, we'll discuss the knowledge book on The Tonic. The Big Carrot is a worker-owned natural food market that's been committed to local, organic, non-GMO, and sustainable food systems since 1983. They're a one-stop shop offering produce, grocery, bulk, body care, and holistic dispensary. The juice and smoothie bars and kitchens serve up hundreds of healthy dishes and drinks daily. Building community is at the core of their vision, which they deliver through education, outreach, and giving. They want everyone to share in the goodness they offer. Visit their website for more information at thebigcarrot.ca. I'd like to give a shout out to our new sponsor, Omega Alpha. This company is 100% Canadian owned. Their team consists of allopathic and naturopathic doctors, nutritionists, researchers, and other scientific professionals, all led by their CEO, Dr. Gordon Chang. Formulations are created on their 40,000 square foot facility located in Toronto. Omega Alpha uses only the highest quality ingredients to manufacture the most efficacious yet price-friendly nutraceuticals. For more information about Omega Alpha, visit OmegaAlphaInc.com. Welcome back to The Tonic, your prescription for a healthier and happier life. Here's your host and publisher of Tonic Magazine, Jamie Busson. Robin Preboy is a life coach and expert in the knowledge book. She'll be at the Tonic Marketplace at the Zoomer Show on October 29th and 30th. So if you want to know more about the Knowledge Book after this interview, please go and visit her. Welcome to the show, Robin. How are you? I'm well. Thanks a lot, Jamie. So we got to start at the beginning, Robin. What is the Knowledge Book? The Knowledge Book is a cosmic book of light. It's designed to accelerate the evolution of human consciousness and create a world of peace and prosperity without wars. It's been translated into 28 languages, so it's all around the world. It's studied and read, and its main purpose is to facilitate the transition from religious consciousness to universal consciousness. Hmm, Interesting. So when you explain it in that way, it kind of has a new agey vibe to it. Fair to say? We're in a new age, Jamie. Okay. So if that's true, why is the knowledge book different than other new age books? It has the frequencies of all the holy books, the Old Testament, the New Testament, the Quran, the Psalms of David, and the philosophies and religions of the Far East that have been given to us for 6,000 years. It's a template for all cultures and spiritual orientations towards a unified viewpoint for humanity. It has the highest frequency of any book in the world, and it has a special cosmic technology called the light photon cyclone technique, which loads time and very high frequencies on the letters so that when somebody reads it according to their consciousness at the time and according to the consciousness of society, it will reveal itself to that person uniquely. So, for instance, in the 27th century, when this book will still be important, it will have the same letters, but it will mean something totally different than our consciousness that we have now because we will have evolved our consciousness. So if you and I were to read it, we would each take different things from it? Is that sort of what you're saying? Very much so. Yes, we're all different. We're all unique human beings. We're all individuals. 
However, we all come from the same place and we all need to remember who we are in a more universal, unified, humanistic state. We're not just individuals, we're part of humanity. And we have to start seeing ourselves and the world like that because we are the stewards of the world. We are the highest consciousness entities in the world and we need to take care of our world and we have to have a high level awareness and a loving awareness and a unified awareness and an intelligent awareness to succeed in doing our job here. How did you come to this? And what does it mean to you? How did you find the knowledge book yourself? I found the knowledge book by somebody invited me to a seminar, a Saturday seminar. And we give these Saturday seminars, by the way, in Toronto. And it's, they're free. And he read a chapter of the book. He explained it. We asked questions. And when I saw this book, when I saw it and when I felt it and when I heard it, I'm very sensitive energetically. And I could see that it was, you know, very special the highest frequency that I'd come across. What do you mean by that when you say the highest frequency? I mean that it in myself, I am lifted to a place of expansion, spaciousness, love, openness, humanistic, and all of creation connection. Okay. That might be you know far out for some of your readers who haven't necessarily experienced that, but it's an amazingly beautiful place to experience. You may have answered this question, and that is, what does the book do for you? And I guess it, it takes you to that place would be the answer, right? Well, it takes you to that place, definitely. But, you know, life is life, and we have to deal with things every day. But, for instance, because of the wisdom in the book, not because of what they told me to do, because they don't tell you what to do. That becomes to you as you read the book. It comes to each person, you know, uniquely as they read the book. But I cured a lifelong fear of flying. Okay. It's helped me to discern what is ego, you know, what is my individual self need and a more universal perspective so that, you know, I take in others more spaciously, more respectfully. I found, this is to me the most important thing, I have found the deepest part of, of myself. Okay. You know, some people call it the soul mm -hmm. or the essence. And when you come, when you come from that place and you feel solid there, you're not as interested in performing for the world. You have a conscience and you have a mandate to come from this single place of it's divine. And everything that you do is part of that. So you feel very integrated. All of your life fits in a whole and it's smooth. And whatever comes to you, you're solid and stable because you're connected to that deeper place within yourself. So that's an amazing Thing to do. And actually, the book helps every person find that place inside. You know, it compels you to. It doesn't tell you to do it. It's just the way that it's written compels you to find that place. The way that it is written. Who actually wrote the book? The book was written over 13 years, from 1981 to 1993. And it was published in Istanbul in 1996 by the Mevlana Supreme Foundation. The person who received the text from the 19th evolution dimension, known as Omega, is Mrs. Vedja Ansu Bulent Chorak, who will be 99 years old next month. She lives in Istanbul. It was dictated to her through the Alpha Channel, which is the single, direct, most powerful universal channel, which actually dictated all the holy books and the philosophies and religions of the Far East. She's called the pen of the golden age. She's a very high vibrational being, and she's kind of like a spiritual mother, but 
we don't worship her. You know, she wouldn't like that because we are all equal. So is she the conduit for this information that found its way into the knowledge book? Yes. It came to her and she transcribed it, I presume in Turkish, into writing and then it's been translated. Is that right? Yes. And it was published in Turkish and English at the same time. Okay. But it's in 28 different languages in the world. Okay. So if she's the conduit, is it explained how how this information came to her? Or is that just taken as a given? Yeah, that's just taken as a given. It's not really, it's not the most important thing. The most important thing is to receive this very high frequency that we don't really have on the planet yet. We need to rise to absorb that and reflect from there. And so it's just important to read it and to study it. And we have, like I said, we have free seminars. We also have study groups, free study groups, where we get together and we study the book. We read a a chapter and we explain it and we answer questions. And we also give out introductory fascicles for free as a gift. Sorry, what's a fascicle? Oh, sorry. A a fascicle is a chapter. Got it. Okay. So for you personally, because I think people understand it better in context of your experience, did you get this information through reading the book yourself or was it more about speaking about the book with others at these seminars and, and learning about it from somebody explaining it to you? Well, that's a really good question because you get a lot from reading it yourself, but there is a need to socialize. And that's a very important thing that humans have to do is we need to socialize. And everybody has the key to each other's subconscious. That's how we're learning now. That's how we're evolving is socially with each other. And so when we get together, we do learn a lot because different people experience this book differently and we share that with each other and that just opens us up and makes us more knowledgeable. You know, to become conscious, we need knowledge. So do you think in your experience, because how long have you been studying the book? How long has it been for you? 13 years. Okay, so in your 13 years experience, is this for everybody? Well, yeah, it's for everybody when they're ready. Okay. Uh, It's a doctorate, you know. To enter it, you have to have a pretty open mind and an open heart, you know, and to stick with it requires a lot of fortitude because it's deep. It's very deep. It's filled with doubts and you have to think in order to unwind your doubts. You have to think about things. You have to think about things with love, you know, not just with your intellect, but with your heart as well. You know, we have to unite our heart with our intellect to be genuine human beings. This this book produces genuine human beings, which we need a genuine humanity, you know, a real, not just, I heard the song the other day, oh, I'm only human. No, we are human and we are amazing. And we need to fulfill our genetic potential of how amazing a human being is. And that's what this book does. I think that we need these frequencies and this cosmic information so we can understand who we are in the scheme of things. And its purpose is universal unification. And I don't see any other way to unify humanity on this grand scale with, without this. I feel that humanity is very, very gifted to have it. Perfect. If people want more information about the Knowledge Book, where should they go? What website? They can go to canada.thenowledgebook.com. Net, And they can also visit you at the Tonic Marketplace on the 29th and 30th at the Zoomer Show, right? Yes, we're in booth 828. And also, I'm happy to give my personal information, my contact. No, we don't do that on the radio, Robin. Thanks anyways. Okay. (laughs) Maybe another time. Thank you so much for coming on the show today. My pleasure. Thank you so much for having me. Thanks to all my wonderful guests, Andy Donald, David Osoga, Carolyn Cohen, and Robin Preboy. And thank you all for listening to The Tonic. 
You can listen or download this episode as a podcast with full show notes, contact information for our guests, and links at thetonic.ca. To find out more about the show, you can always follow us at It's The Tonic on Facebook, Instagram, or Twitter. For great articles by amazing health and wellness writers, be sure to pick up your copy of The Tonic magazine. The September-October issue is available free on racks at over 100 locations across the GTA and delivered with the Globe and Mail to home subscribers in Toronto, west of Victoria Park. Or you can visit our new website, thetonic.ca. If you're interested in providing feedback or suggesting topics for the show, you can always email me at jamie at thetonic.ca. On our next show, we'll discuss the health and wellness issues that are important to you. Until then, this is Jamie Busson wishing you a healthy and happy week. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.